The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. ABSA CIB, winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spire Awards for the sixth year running, proudly brings you The Money Show. ABSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. It's wonderful to be in your company on this Friday night. Our Friday file tonight takes us into deepest French hook. <laughs> is there anywhere deep and dark in French hook? I'm sure there are places, but generally speaking, at this time of the year, French hook is bakingly hot is home to some of, certainly Africa's and some of the world's, I'm sure, greatest restaurants, eateries and dining experiences. We'll speak to a top chef, an owner of a wonderful eatery in Franchuk, just about the state of the season and find out how things are going and just the, the quality of South Africa's food and the value of the offering. Um, you know, when, you go, when you're shelling out 3,000 rand for a meal, yes, 3,000 rand for a meal, and I said to you, Boy, that's good value. It's a relative concept compared to what similar experiences would cost you elsewhere in the world. We'll play the Brutal Biz Quiz. We will also this evening catch up with Fazam Esani, the founder of Valor. It's a cryptocurrency trading platform. I'm fascinated in his views tonight of the breakthrough that has happened in the Bitcoin world with exchange-traded funds available for investors in the United States. In, uh, in Bitcoin, price of Bitcoin under pressure today. And in a moment, Lungisa Fuzile, the chair of the Banking Association, chief executive of Standard Bank South Africa, talking about what banks can do to help the state from imploding. That's what's on our agenda this evening. Also, in our best bits this evening, we had a marvellous chat with, well, several marvellous chats. Of course we did. But a marvellous chat in particular um, with one individual. And that one individual is somebody who is a household name in many respects in South Africa. Whenever there's anything to do with planes and airlines, we call on Lyndon Burns, who is an aviation geek, um, but somebody who understands the industry very well. And we just got under his skin just a little bit on our How I Make Money feature this last Monday evening. So that's how we are playing out this Friday night. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. I hope you are, but I for one certainly am relieved that despite some fairly obvious union and public sector hostility, the South African business sector remains committed to helping government fix the country. But you can't have a functioning business in a failing state. And the country loves nothing more, at least some of our politicians seem to love nothing more, than tap dancing on the precipice of economic self-destruction. It's one of our most frustrating national habits. But there is a fine line between helping and working in naked self-interest. We've all been around long enough now to know that not all private sector participation in government is a good thing, the Gupta State Capture Project being the most recent case in point. Lungisa Fuzile was Director General of Finance on the day that Dares van Royen rocked up as briefly 94 hours, I think it was in total, finance minister with a gang of Gupta acolytes and tried to take over the treasury. There was that sterling and magnificent fight back. And today, Lungisa Fuzile is the chief executive of Standard Bank South Africa. He's also chair of the Banking Association of South Africa. And it is with that hat on this evening that we speak to him. And I saw a statement, Lungisa, from you today saying that banks must contribute to reviving the economy. Explain what the context is of that statement, if you would. 
Uh, good evening, Bruce, and then good evening to uh, the, the listeners of uh, this program. Bruce, because it was the occasion of releasing the the annual report of BASA that uh, you correctly pointed out, I've got uh, the, the honor to chair at this moment. I had to say then banks have got to work with government, partner government, to help uh, fix what ails the South African economy to reignite uh, uh, economic growth. But you could substitute banks with everyone. Everyone who resides in South Africa, who, who cares about um, this beautiful country of ours, uh, about where it comes from, about this massive, uh, you can call it, transformation project that our country is, um, is on, has to put the shoulder to the wheel to help make sure that we get out of uh, the sort of low growth um, trap that we seem to be in uh, and make sure that um, uh, the, the, the economy grows. Now, in summary, Bruce, and I know you know this, but let me say it for, for emphasis. When the economy grows, it offers all kinds of good opportunities. Uh, it offers opportunities for existing businesses to expand their operations, to hire more people. It also offers entrepreneurs who have been contemplating to set up businesses uh, that confidence that this is the right opportunity because a growing economy lifts most things or lifts everyone up. So in a way, entrepreneurs would take up those opportunities there again, make money and or hire people. When the economy grows in its entirety, then government can get more uh, government revenues, be able to pay for good and absolutely necessary social programs in an affordable way, in a sustainable way, without worrying about uh, uh, breaking the bank or fiscal unsustainability, yes. Talk to me about the specifics of how you intend to help, because language is important when you issue these sorts of statements, and it says... Banks will help increase the proficiency of the state for both the sectors and the national interest. Does that mean banks move in, bring people, bring expertise, bring money, and actually actively get involved in the running of government? Because that's how I read that. No, 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 no. Um, In fact, uh, the best choice of words is that banks, and the private sector more broadly, must partner government, must partner government, hold hands with government. Um, we each have strength. Government, by the way, even at its weakest, if it were to be, would still have some strength. The private sector, with the strength that it has, may still have weaknesses that can be pointed to. The key is leverage the strength of each party and use that as a launch pad to build into a better future. Let me illustrate this very concretely. If you take one of the toughest constraints 
holding this economy back is energy. Government can reset policies. It has just it has done that. Uh, it has enabled the private sector to invest more. Just recently, we had the very good news of the progress that has been made to split ESCOM into three corporate entities. And of course, government has issued round after round, the recent one being the seventh round of the renewable uh, independent power producer programs. Now, the private sector, on the other hand, with strong balance sheets, banks with their capacity to intermediate resources from the entire globe have come to bear to make massive investments into renewables which are now generating upwards of 4,000 megawatts, mm. an equivalent of one of the biggest power stations, Bruce. So that's what we mean. And you can take that to the next area, the next area, and the other area. But let me add this point before you come in. I am absolutely clear about this, having worked for government previously. There yeah, are things exactly. that only government can do. No, yeah, 100%. And, and, and the thing is, there, there, there is... I think in some circles, a belief that this is a government that is no longer worthy of support and that will come through in the election as to whether or not voters en masse believe that and whether or not private sector support for government translates ultimately to private sector support for the ANC and for a more positive electoral outcome for the ANC. As somebody who has been on the inside, and somebody who's now on the outside, what would be your response to that suggestion? No, my, my response to that, Bruce, uh, um, is, is uh, simple. And I hope, I hope it doesn't fall within the realm of being simplistic. Elections are a natural uh, process of democracy. But once the elections have passed, a government gets formed. In some instances, as it has been the case since the dawn of democracy in our case, that election or elections after elections have produced governments that are led by the ANC. But that's not a given. That is not a given. It could be different. And there's a lot of speculation about the elections that are coming in a couple of months. But once a government is in place, constituted by either one party or by a coalition, it is imperative that it is viewed as a legitimate institution that represents and works for all South Africans. And of course, there may be instances where it conducts itself in ways that people feel this is not my government. That's debatable. But when a government is in place, when its legitimacy is not questioned, when the way it conducts business is consistent with the constitution, the laws of the country, it may make mistakes from time to time. It is worth supporting it. We can't simply because the government that is in place is constituted by a party or by parties that I don't like, then I mobilize against it mm. before the next election. So I waste, in essence, 
I mean, if I'm using myself here, you, you waste the four years or five years between elections because the outcome of the previous election you didn't like. That wouldn't be consistent with the tenets, the core principles of democracy. Once Lugisa, a democratic process well, Lug- is produced, Lug- a legitimate yeah, government we- work with it. Yeah, Lungisa, thank you very much indeed. Lungisa Fuzile is the Chief Executive of Standard Bank South Africa, speaking to us this evening uh, in the context of being the Chair of the Banking Association. And that commitment, that ongoing commitment for which I think we should all be grateful by the, uh, by the, public se- by the private sector, I beg your pardon, to keep supporting um, the transformation of uh, the, the state capture project and saying, hold on a second, we cannot have high-functioning businesses in a collapsing environment. It's just not feasible at all. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by the winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spy Awards for the sixth year running, APSA CIB. APSA's a registered FSP. Well, we covered the news yesterday of the long-awaited approval by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the regulators, of a handful of exchange-traded funds covering Bitcoin in the U.S. market. But it does need a bit more explanation. For that, we've asked the founder of Vala, which is a cryptocurrency trading platform, Fazam Esani, to join us. And just a, a short explanation, if you would, Fazam, on the significance of having spot Bitcoin ETFs being approved by the SEC. What exactly does it mean? Good evening, Bruce. It basically means that for the first time ever, uh, exposure to Bitcoin through a traditional financial product like an ETF or an exchange-traded fund is available to the public to be traded through the traditional brokerage accounts. So through the likes of BlackRock and Fidelity, these are some of the largest asset managers in the world, Previously, you could not get exposure to Bitcoin. You would have you'd, you would have had to have gone to a, a crypto exchange to get that exposure. But now you can actually go through your traditional uh, channels like your brokerage accounts. Uh, you can go and simply buy a Bitcoin ETF, and that ETF will track the price of the underlying Bitcoin. By definition, an ETF actually has to hold the underlying asset for everything that it sells as an ETF. So it effectively gives the mass market exposure to this asset class, which is a big milestone because applications started to have this applications started for this ETF more than 10 years ago. There's been many legal battles to get this to the point that it is. So it's a big milestone for the crypto industry overall. Uh, The implications then, uh, how does it change the dynamics then of the crypto market? So I think the major thing is what it stands for. So you have the Securities and Exchange Commission, which has historically denied many of these applications, as I mentioned, but they've finally come out and they've accepted it and they've approved it. Now, a little bit begrudgingly, if I may say, there are five commissioners, (laughs) three of them approved it or voted for it, two of them still against, but it was on the back of some court cases that, that, that took place. And what it really means is that an asset class that many people over the past decade have been talking about only associated with illicit activities such as money laundering or ransomware is actually now coming into the mainstream where a lot of the opponents are having to think twice to say, well, this is now available to the mainstream. It's available now to be put into retirement funds, into investment portfolios. And we're seeing a a big move towards that. Yesterday, the first day of trading, 
clocked about $4.6 billion worth of trading, the largest amount of trading of any ETF that is ever listed on, on a U.S. exchange. So it signifies quite a lot of interest. There's still a lot of skepticism, obviously, from some courts, a lot of proponents of this asset class. But I think it's taking Bitcoin from a place of obscurity and skepticism into the mainstream. There will continue to be volatility. There are those like Jamie Dimon, who is the CEO of one of the largest banks of the world, JP Morgan, who has come out publicly to say that if he was part of the government, he would ban this. So it's clearly something that's still very controversial, but is now available to the public to make their own decision themselves. Uh, well, certainly we've seen a rally, 70% rally in the price of Bitcoin over the last six, eight months or so in anticipation of this announcement. Now it's almost a case of buy on rumors, sell on fact. Cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, particularly today, for example, the day after the, the ETFs were launched, down about 5%, which is a lot of money when your cryptocurrency is trading between thirty-five and $40,000 a coin. It is a lot of money, and I think it's a very good point. I think the volatility will remain. It will continue to be a very volatile asset, particularly because of what I just said, where there are mm. people that have completely divergent views about the value of this of this asset. So that, that will continue, and I think uh, investors need to be aware of that. I think one thing to mention is that, you know, particularly off the back of the sell the news aspect of the, the price coming down about 5% today, one of the largest... Uh, trusts, Bitcoin investment trusts, Grayscale, had about $28 billion worth of, of value in that trust that couldn't be sold over the past decade, effectively. And so this conversion from their trust into an ETF is the first time that many of those participants are able to sell their, their assets. So I think there is an expectation that there's going to be some sell pressure from that transition from that trust into the ETF. But uh, I think your point is very well taken. I expect to see a lot of volatility still to come, both on the upside and the downside. But it is the first time in history that we have an ETF whose supply is by definition limited. We've never had this ever yeah. before. Bitcoins are always limited. And so we, I do expect the price to go up over time, but uh, with a lot of volatility in between. Fazam, as always, thank you very much for your calm perspective on one of the more interesting stories of the week. Our Money Show explainer this evening, the founder at Valor.com, Fazam Esani. The Money Show. The Markets. Wayne McCurry from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank. Does that make your toes curl, Wayne McCurry, that we've got these, uh, these cryptocurrency Bitcoin ETFs now as official investment options listed on American exchanges? Does it scare the living daylights out of you? Well, Bruce, maybe I'm a little bit like you. I'm a bit of a Luddite. I've always been extremely cautious about Bitcoin and things that you can't touch and see and feel and get a cash flow into your bank account. Yeah, maybe I just don't understand it, but yes, it does actually concern me a little bit because, as you all know, the price is so volatile. You know, over the last couple of years, it's gone from 17,000 down to seven, up to 60, down to 17, back to 43. It's really volatile. Yeah, just because it's volatile and just because we don't understand it doesn't mean the people don't get excited about it. And, yeah, no, no, I got you on that, just yeah. not, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Luddite, just like you. Oh, once once yes. again, being a Luddite, yeah. 
No, no. Again, I, 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 I proclaim sheer ignorance despite my efforts to learn. Um, it's not been the best of weeks on markets anywhere, but it's no. not been the worst of weeks either. I think we've been okay this week. Certainly today, a switch back into gold on quite a, a, mm. a, sust- a strong basis based on a couple of negative data points during the week. Yeah, look, Bruce, I mean, this year it's actually been quite difficult because, you know, contrary to how it ended last year, the market's actually been quite negative and, you know, exactly the, the, the shares that went up last year and the sectors that went up at the end of last year are the ones that were down this year and yet nothing's really changed. I mean, even the inflation number out yesterday didn't in fact influence the market all that much. So, you know, maybe we just ran up too much at the end of last year and some sort of negative and consolidation is necessary. It certainly is that it is what it feels like at the moment, and our South African market sort of trying to find its feet. I'm quite comfortable though, and and, and quite comforted by the reading I'm getting from the financial sector on the JSE, where you've got first round ending this week above 70 rand. You've got yes. Capitec ending above 2,000 rand. In a week where U.S. banks, the forecast for U.S. banking results are fairly negative, underscoring mm. perhaps a, a fragility in the U.S. economy. And our banking sector is a great barometer for an outlook on the health of South Africa for the year ahead. And I'm, I'm kind of interpreting that to to be probably less bad news for South Africa during 2024. Yeah, look, I think personally, I think we're going to have a great year this year, led by the mining shares. But the general South African shares and the banking shares that you're talking about are are cheap. I mean, there's just no other way to de- to describe them. I mean, all we need for a really good turnaround in our market is, you know, uh, interest rates to fall and a resumption or the upside in the commodity cycle, some sort of stability, strength in the rand, lower interest rates here and overseas. Our market can actually perform to be honest, extremely well in that environment. Wayne McCurry from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank. Thank you, Wayne, for stepping in this evening here on The Money Show. Half past six in time for the latest eyewitness news. Here's Veronica Mahwadi. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Welcome to The Money Show. And, of course, The Money Show is brought to you by those nice people at ABSA CIB. I'll tell you more about them in just a moment or three. You see, that rhymed. Uh, ABSA CIB, winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spire Awards for the sixth year running, proudly brings you The Money Show. ABSA is a registered FSP, a financial services provider, just in case you're wondering. We'll get on to our Friday file in just a moment. But first, let me tell you that coming up on the next Money Show, Alan Committee, the comedian, the actor, the entertainer, the qualified high school teacher on our How I Make Money feature. I'm really looking forward to catching up with him, particularly after a wonderfully magnanimous gesture recently giving away takings to struggling actors. Uh, Toby Shapchak on the latest bling and shiny gadgets that are available uh, around the world. And we'll review business books plus the latest business stories, the biggest money stories that you need to know about next time on The Money Show. The Money Show. The Friday File. The Friday File.
We'll get to the Friday file in just a moment. I grew up on a diet of the Hardy Boys. Remember the Hardy Boys? It was the 1970s gateway drug to two uh, to true crime detective series and Ian Rankin novels. Ian Rankin, deeply complex, but my goodness me, what great cr- true crime stories those are. Today, I learned something new about my childhood obsession and the books that helped me get through a really messy tonsillectomy uh, when I was nine years old. The franchise of the Hardy Boys not only still exists, but new books are being written to this day under the name of Franklin W. Dixon. Now, I saw this piece in The Atlantic today. And along with the Nancy Drew stories, which are about a young female, a teenage female detective, almost all of the thrillers in these very, very popular franchises are produced by ghostwriters, thanks to a business model that continues to this day. And it's vintage stuff. It's now, however, being set in the 21st century in a new context. And it's still attracting readers. These books have been going for more than eight decades since they were first thought about. But the Hardy Boys series, as well as the Nancy Drew series, carry the names of the original authors, Franklin W. Dixon for the Hardy Boys, and Carolyn Keene, probably the originators of the characters and the original brand ethos. But... These have gone to franchises, a bit like Marvel will survive the the death of the late Spike Lee and will continue, possibly deteriorating with every film, Uh, but they do continue. And it's brilliant. There's still several Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew titles released every single year, and they've got current references to ensure they're relevant to today's readers. And the owners of these franchises have discovered how to keep costs down and ensure that the look and feel is familiar. And a whole bunch of freelancers who you will never know who they are. And it doesn't matter because as long as you love the stories, that's all that matters really, doesn't it? It turns out there's a whole industry in ghostwriting books. Something I need to look into. I've written to my publisher and I've said not to get my own books uh, um, continuing, but to try and understand this industry. And if she's uh, happy to talk about it, we'll chat to my publisher. Don't want to name her on air. I think you know who she is if you're familiar with the publishing industry. Uh, But if she could talk to us about it and help us understand it better, I think it's a fascinating topic for discussion perhaps next week. The Money Show. The Friday File. The Friday File. Now it's time for The Friday File. One of my dearest school friends' mothers was... Possibly, I think, the first of a new era of restaurateurs to spot the opportunity in Franschhoek and to cook top-end food. And unfortunately, she died while we were still at school, but Andre MacWilliam Smith was her name. Yes, truly, that was her name. She was the founder of Le Quartier Francais, uh, which is still regarded as one of the finest restaurants in the land. And Franschhoek has got this beautiful, wonderful foodie culture, and it's one of the great treats of attending the literary festival in early winter in Franschhoek every year. Not only do you get books, but you get awesome food and wine, and it's just lovely. You only have to travel the world just a little bit to realize how spoiled we are, not only in terms of the astonishing quality of our food and the astonishing quality of the restaurant experiences and by global standards the really competitive pricing even at 3,000 rand for a meal um, by global standards to discover just how good what we have to offer in South Africa is Chef Darren Bardenhorst is the chef and co-owner and I'm going to get this wrong Darren Le Coin is it Le Croix Francais Uh, 
restaurant in front of your car. Le quoi? You see, I did get it. I got it sorted right. Um, Franchuk's still at the epicenter of not only South African food, but I would argue African food as well. Yeah, for sure. Look, I mean, Franchuk's always been kind of deemed as the culinary capital. It's definitely uh, spreading out into the greater Wineland. Stellenbosch is showing off quite well, which I'm allowed to say because I've got three establishments there too. Uh, So, so there's, um, yeah, everybody's doing really well out in the industry this side for sure. And it's a great season this year. I mean, I saw some figures from Jordan Hill Lewis this week. Just, you know, thousands of people are arriving in the Western Cape every single day. It must have been a bumper season for the restaurant trade. Yeah, so far, so good. It, it was a bit of a strange one, obviously, from from um, post-COVID last year, where sort of everybody and, and their best mate was out dining from all over the world. So it was a great spend last year, and that meant that season was long. This season seems to be uh, started a little bit later, but still a really good one. So um, long make last, yeah, a couple of months still left. Uh, and talk to me about the, 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 the sorts of challenges that you face as a South African restaurateur in a very seasonal global tourism industry, of course, where there's this massive influx of people over um, end of November, December, January into February. And then things sort of tend to, to fall off a cliff in terms of the high volume of global tourists who primarily are the sorts of people who would be willing to pay 3000 Rand for a, for a gourmet meal. Yeah, for sure. Look, I mean, the, the Cape specifically from a South African standpoint is, is it has exceptionally high qualities from a cuisine point of view that without a doubt rival the rest of the of the world's um, sort of culinary capitals. So we're really fortunate from that point of view where we're getting loads of attention now um, from both local and abroad, which is helping sort of the seasonality extend a bit more. But jet nail on the head, we are very seasonal. Um, Cape Town itself is slightly less seasonal. Um, the CBD, whereas the winelands is obviously a bit more seasonal. And it's it's kind of, you know, if if South Africans as foodies and as um, sort of people with culinary interests, if they want to keep us growing and keep us performing and competing, then this is come and support out of season time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, 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 I mean, you've won lots of awards, the San Pellegrino Awards. You've, I think you've, you must have at least two cabinets with trophies and things in them. You've, you've um, got Le Croix Francais and you've got other restaurants in your portfolio yeah. as well. You can't be everywhere all at once. And, and so you, you sort of, uh, you've, you've created businesses that are able to sustain themselves even when you're not present. And I think that's absolutely critical in any business, but it must be particularly mm-hmm. hard as a chef when you're not hands-on everywhere, every day, all the time. Yeah, look, I think the reality of it is, is that you learn as you go. And when you're young, you, you think you're bulletproof and you can do it all. And the reality is you can't. And um, I've, I've kind of found a nice groove where I've got a good balance. I, I've sold off a couple of my places. I reopen new places with a different mindset and, like I say, with a bit more balance. And you definitely can't be everywhere at once, but it's about uh, aligning yourself with the right partners um, and pointing the right people and treating them well so that they don't leave. It's really as simple as that. And we are, in all of my establishments, we have huge advocates for mental health and we really do try to look after our staff and create a, a safe um, environment for them to, to thrive and grow and also to grow their, themselves um, sort of as a culinary brand as well. For anyone who's not ever worked in the restaurant trade, and I count Spur as being in the restaurant trade because that's my experience, um, but anyone who's never worked in it just doesn't understand, I think, how relentless it is, this idea of shift work, mm-hmm. this idea mm-hmm. that 
uh, the world wants to have a good time at times when you have to work. So whether that be the lunchtime trade, whether you do any breakfast trade, or whether it's that late night trade where people want to go out and have a good time and sit and drink their cognacs at you know eleven o'clock at night, there's a relentlessness to it which I'm not too sure is necessarily appreciated by the people who are doing the enjoying. Yeah, sure, I agree. I think relentlessness is, is a great descriptor of it. You know, people, customers can be ruthless, to put it bluntly, and um, the expectation for the value of their money yeah. is deserved, but also it, it can be ruthless. So, yeah, I mean, it's tough, um, specifically in, in a seasonality sort of driven industry like we have in, in South Africa, where it's really you have to make hay while the sun shines and work really hard. But again, it's about finding balance. It's, um, you know, looking after your staff, and there's a reason why. Uh, my space is only open in the evenings for dinner and we, we close a night a week and everybody gets bare minimum two days off and we really control that and, and it's it's a good reflection where we have very, very low staff turnover and our staff are all really happy. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it's as long as you, you play the game fairly, then things are good, but it's a tough industry, of course. Of course. I was looking at your menus and just hating my life for <laughs> briefly, just for a moment. But well, I, I just... Exactly. I mean, it's just I just love I love the town and I love how what it represents and the way in which it's shaped itself over over mm-hmm. decades now. But I mean, I just you you're you're a French styled restaurant. You do small plates of delicious food. I'm just going to take mm-hmm. through one menu item, which excites sure. me beyond what it should. Um, but it's this wonderful mixture of a French style, but making it absolutely local without feeling the need to say throw in a bourrevos on the plate. As well, just to make say this is South African food, but butter poached and barbecued North Coast langoustine, uh, aerated Gruberg, uh, which is a, a wonderful cheese out of the Western Cape, West Coast oh. snook um, with, with uh, wild. Yeah. Vi- the Brandad, I didn't even know Brandad, I thought it was a typo. Wild Vineyard Shoots, Green Pea and Pancetta Risotto. I mean, my goodness gracious yeah. me. It's, it's that courage to be incredibly local while also saying and, and then paying tribute to a, to a global culinary culture, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's great that you mentioned that dish, actually, because that is the only dish in all the restaurants I've ever owned that I've never taken off the menu. <laughs> I had it on, I, I put it on the first day I opened Le Croix Francais, and I, I, you know, the menu developed, and I just loved that dish so much, and it, it obviously was tweaked in, with a bit of time. And then after about, I don't know, maybe about four or five months, you, you know, you, you get an itch in your pants and you want to change all the dishes. And I, with a, a bit of internal fighting with myself because I didn't want to take it off, I took it off on one service. And uh, the customer, one customer walked in the door, the first customer for the evening, and he said, I'm here for the langoustine. And I was like, uh-oh, it's off the menu. And he's like, you can't you come from Cape Town for this. So I put it back on, and I've never taken it off. And it's, it's uh, the firm favorite here. Uh, I was once having a chat with my producer about an, a content issue, and I said, I'm bored of this. And uh, she said to me, well, do you, do you think that the Eagles really want to sing Hotel California ever again? No, they probably don't, but they know their audience wants Hotel California. So you carry yeah. on doing what we're doing. Um, and, yeah, I suppose in the restaurant trade, if you've got the equivalent of Hotel California on a plate, you don't not play oh, it, yeah. you know? Oh, 100%. If it ain't break. 
Chef Darren Bardenos this evening. Thank you, Chef, very much for joining us this Thanks. evening. The owner of not only Le Croix Francais, uh, which is a a must-do Franchuk restaurant, but also uh, three others in the Stellenbosch area as well. And uh, what a fabulous insight into the local foodie industry at a time of year where you will struggle to get a table. But there are times of year where you can travel more affordably and go to these beautiful places that won't be overrun by lots of lovely uh, visitors spending their foreign exchange and you too can participate in a range of experiences in these places but yeah generally it's, it's going to be a, a pricey night out uh, we're going to play the brutal biz quiz in just a moment it is the second time this year that we're playing the brutal biz quiz and i'm thoroughly looking forward to it because it's been a wonderful news week and we base our brutal biz quiz on what is happening in the news and so we challenge you to challenge us to see whether or not you can outwit outsmart outplay and outmaneuver us or do we get the upper hand this evening uh, the way you play is on 021-446-0567 or 011-883-0702. Uh, I ask questions. You answer as many as you possibly can. And if I'm in a good mood, I give a clue. If I'm in my normal mood, I torture and, and tantalize. Um, and we play the game until we find ourselves a winner. And if you don't win, I win and my producers win and we go out and celebrate. Uh, our first question this evening, uh, it was a parting of the ways after 27 years this week between the sports brand Nike and which global superhero of his particular discipline? Which sportsman has left Nike is the short version of that question. 011-883-0702-021-446-0567. Give us a shout and come and play the Brutal Biz Quiz this Friday night. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Craig in Germiston is first up on the Brutal Biz Quiz this evening. Nike parted ways with which sportsman after 27 years, Craig? Oh, the Bruce Yard was Tiger Woods, eh? Absolutely, Tiger Woods, synonymous with Nike. 82 wins on the PGA Tour, 15 major titles wearing Nike. Tiger Woods announced it's the end of an era. Now, an upmarket retailer has told its customers that they are no longer to w- welcome to bring cash to some of its cafes. Which retailer was this? This was some uh, company in France. I forget how to pronounce the name, but I uh, remember even you battled no, with no, it. No, 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 not care for, because uh, this is uh, a South African like retailer. <laughs> okay, a, South, uh, no, a South African retailer did that this week. Uh, it said, no. no more cash, please. Did you miss that story, Craig? Uh, Woolworths. Oh, can... was not Woolworths. Woolworths. Jeez, that was close, Craig. Almost had to <laughs> you out. Which is the world's most valuable company? Uh, is it IBM? It's not IBM. It's not in the top five. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, in the top ten. Sorry, but, Craig, no. thank you very much indeed. No, Craig is gone. Thank you very much, Craig. Do if we can be quick on that one. That'll be good because we don't need second guessing. Uh, but well done, Craig. You got to three. Northern this evening uh, on the line to us from Midrand. Which is the world's most is valuable company? Is it Apple? Is it? Apple? Apple. I'll go with Apple. It, wa- 
it was the world's most valuable company till this time yesterday, Norvin. This is why it's a, a, a very tough question. But thank you for playing, Norvin. I'm afraid that's wrong. Let's go to, I think it's Mandla in Linesia or Mandal in Linesia. Um, which is the world's most valuable company? Nike. Pardon? Nike? Yeah, Nike. I'm afraid not. It's nowhere near oh. the world's most valuable company. But but thank you for playing. Nike, of course, was the answer to the first question. We've got to, we make progress. You see, we ask one question. Once it gets answered correctly, we then ask a different question. Otherwise, it becomes a bit easy if the answer to the question is the same every time. Carlo in Joburg South, which is the world's most valuable company? Um, Bruce, I'm in the garden alone. Is it not Microsoft? No, it's not, I'm afraid, Carlo, but thank you for playing Shane in Pretoria, which is the world's most valuable company. Hi, Bruce. Um, I was actually going to guess Microsoft as well. You were going, sorry, I'm struggling to hear you, Shane. You were going to say? I was going to say Microsoft. Microsoft. Microsoft is the correct answer, Shane. As of this time yesterday, Microsoft... Uh, overtook Apple as the world's most valuable company. Um, Apple's had a rough start because iPhone sales haven't been what they would like uh, to be. And we saw Microsoft rise uh, to $2.88 trillion, overtaking um, overtaking Apple. And it's the first time since 2021 that the value of Apple has fallen below that of Microsoft. And I very nearly caught Warren Ingram out with that question last night, but he had his wits about him. Fortunately, um, and therefore, uh, yes, Warren was not left permanently scarred or embarrassed. But yes, Microsoft, as of this time yesterday, is the world's most valuable company. The name, the former U.S. vice president, um, a guy famous more for being a climate campaigner than perhaps a vice president to uh, Bill Clinton, who has been kicked off the Apple board because he's too old. Hello? I'm not hearing an answer from Shane. Shane? Earth to Shane? Sorry, uh, I got disconnected with Mr. Gore. I think it's Alan Gore. Al Gore, Al Gore absolutely, Shane. That's going to make you the oh. of the Brutal Biz quiz this week. Well done to you, Shane. Thank you for playing. Al Gore, officially too old to serve on the Apple board. They've got a policy of 75 as a top age as which you can serve on the Apple board. He will have to retire. Therefore, he's been on the board since 2003. My goodness gracious me, they do like to keep them around. He uh, was the 45th vice president of the United States and famously lost out in that really controversial um, election. Uh, the Florida vote counted, as it so often does, uh, which then ushered in George W. Bush as the 46th president of the United States. That wraps up the first hour of The Money Show, but there's still more to come. Some of the best bits from the week that has been. Thank you for playing the Brutal Biz Quiz. Well done, Al. Can I call you Al? I think I'll call you Al. Um, and uh, well done to you on the uh, becoming the second winner of 2024 on the Brutal Biz Quiz this Friday night. Coming up next, including the discussion with Lyndon Burns on how I make money. That is uh, part of the best bits of The Money Show in the next hour. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield was brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking, bringing you award-winning trade and working capital funding solutions to unlock the full potential of your business story. APSA is a registered FSP.